Pediatric Inflammatory Multisystem Syndrome, or PIMS, is an emerging disorder associated with COVID-19. It is rare, but it has the potential to be devastating. I'm Dr. Neil Chancelloni, Associate Editor for the Canadian Medical Association Journal. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Ray Young, who's co-authored an article describing the details of the case of a 10-year-old boy who was diagnosed with PIMS. The article is published in CMAJ. Dr. Young is a pediatrician, professor of pediatrics, immunology, and medical science at the University of Toronto, and a senior scientist in cell biology research at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto. She's joining me today on the podcast to discuss some of what we know about how PIMS relates to COVID-19. Welcome, Dr. Young. Hello, great to be here. Thanks a lot for inviting me. Before we talk about pediatric inflammatory multisystem syndrome, or PIMS, tell me about the boy you treated. How did he present to hospital and what were the positive findings from history and examination that made you think about PIMS? Yeah, so he was um, a previously healthy uh, boy uh, who presented with prolonged fever. And I think one of the um, uh, cardinal things that we think about in kids uh, with prolonged fever is Kawasaki disease. But unusual in his case is that he had dramatic abdominal pain with significant vomiting and diarrhea together with the features of Kawasaki disease, which include bilateral non-exitative uh, conjunctival injection and red cracked lips as well as peripheral changes. And interestingly, in this young man's story, four weeks prior to this episode, he had a brief episode of fever associated with headache and really um, no respiratory symptoms, but together with the rest of his family actually tested positive for SARS-CoV-2 on an NP swab, which was really one of the key things making us think about PIMS in this particular case. And on arrival to our hospital, he was extremely tachycardic and was actually hypotensive and cool and poorly perfused. Um, and uh, again, this um, cardiogenic shock feature is very common uh, as a, a severe presentation of PIMS. So you mentioned prolonged fever as being one of the diagnostic criteria or one of the criteria that you're thinking about when thinking about PIMS. What kind of duration are we thinking about when we say the word prolonged? So um, I think uh, there's a lot of debate still in the international community when to really raise the red flag. Um, in Kawasaki disease, it's uh, typically five days of fever before we start thinking of Kawasaki disease. And depending on how wide you want to cast a net and um, when you want to start um, uh, thinking about um, uh, triaging and screening children for this, um, many different institutions and, and organizations around the world have had picked different um, uh, cutoff for fever. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, most agree that by three days of fever, we should start thinking seriously about other causes of um, inflammation or hyperinflammation together with the uh, uh, regular, typical um, protocol-driven looks when we think of kids with fever. So you describe the presentation of a prolonged fever in a child who was, who was shocked. What were some of the significant or noteworthy findings in his blood tests and imaging scans? So I think one of some of the uh, classic things that we see on uh, laboratory and uh, imaging investigations are really the classic signs of hyperinflammation. And in this particular case, his laboratory findings were consistent with the presentation of Kawasaki disease, cardiogenic shock, myocarditis, liver dysfunction, acute kidney injury, as well as evolving macrophage activation syndrome. And these really include an elevated CRP, a high white count, uh, which is usually has a high neutrophil predominance with neutrophilia, 
but a low lymphocyte count, so with uh, lymphopenic. Um, hyponatremia and hypoalbuminemia, which are also present in Kawasaki disease. And as features of MAS or evolving MAS, he had a very low platelet count, a high ferritin, high um, liver transaminases, as well as evidence of coagulopathy with high D-dimers and low fibrinogen, as well as hypertriglyceridemia. In this particular case, there was also biochemical evidence of acute um, kidney injury. And um, for cardiovascular uh, component uh, and effect, he had a markedly elevated troponin, as well as an N-terminal pro-BNP, um, uh, as well as an ECG evidence of conduction abnormalities and uh, echocardiogram evidence of myocarditis. Interestingly, in this particular case, he was negative on his recent um, SARS-CoV-2 NP swab, but his serology for um, antibody response was positive. So just to clarify, he had an MP2 swab four weeks prior to his presentation that was positive, but was negative on his repeat MP2 swab, but positive for serology. Correct. And again, it speaks to the um, uh, really the timing of the nature of the this post-inflammatory response after SARS-CoV-2 infection. That's really interesting. And the order set for serology and potential imaging is quite wide for PIMS. Are there certain investigations or blood tests that you'd say are perhaps more indicative or more important than other ones? What's the classical uh, presentation that we might see biochemically that we can order in a district general hospital or, or a non-specialist center? Yeah, so it's a fantastic question. And I think it's always been a, a balance between over-investigating and making sure that we cast a wide enough net um, for understanding children, um, uh, being able to catch the children and be able to at least find the ones that progress to the severe form of the disease. So most guidelines actually um, propose a um, tiered or a stepwise approach to investigations with some screening blood work first. And the screening blood work usually includes um, a, your, a, a CRP or ESR together with a CBC. And these, if you have elevation, and the classic findings are really elevation of this uh, of the C-reactive protein, um, together with a, um, a lymphopenia or a neutrophilia, uh, and these are pretty typical findings that we see in uh, PIMS. Um, the other um, typical features um, on screening blood work, if you include electrolytes, is really the presence of a low sodium and a low albumin. And one of the concerning features that we have is also a low platelet count on the initial uh, screening blood work. If you were to elevate this to more of an extended blood work in step two, if you're finding children with this uh, blood picture of an elevated um, C-reactive protein and a low platelet count, then we um, usually add um, coagulation studies to look for evidence of uh, high D-dimers or hyperferritinemia or elevated transaminases um, as well as um, together with the ECG findings of conduction abnormality. Thank you. That's really clear for readers on, on how they can um, start initial investigations before they carry on with subsequent investigations. Um, so your child was eventually diagnosed with pediatric inflammatory multisystem syndrome. What do we know about PIMS as it relates to SARS-CoV-2 infection? So it's really quite a fascinating and an incredibly rapidly evolving story of uh, international collaboration and communication. Because the very first case of a child that was reported with a Kawasaki-like feature associated with COVID-19 was only reported in late April. 
But by um, the late April, early May, investigators from the UK and Italy began reporting clusters of these children presenting with the severe febrile inflammatory illness um, following infection with SARS-CoV-2. So these children presented with uh, multi-system inflammation that resembled Kawasaki disease with a predilection for the um, uh, cardiovascular system, but it was occurring way more often than the expected normal incidence of Kawasaki disease. And the cardiovascular features, especially the uh, overt shock and myocardial dysfunction requiring ICU admission and inotropic support were really much more dramatic, as well as the features of macrophage activation syndrome and this consumptive consumption coagulopathy as well as their depressed cell lines was a very prominent feature. And very soon thereafter, uh, the UK National Health Service uh, issued a public health alert to doctors about the emergence of this unusual multi-system inflammatory disease. And by May, the WHO and the CDC in the US, as well as the Canadian Pediatric Society, all issued their own alerts and gave the syndrome um, many different names. So the UK has called it PIMS-TS for Pediatric uh, Multi-System Inflammatory Syndrome Temporally Associated with COVID-19, a, a real mouthful there. So most people use um, short forms. And the similar name of Pediatric Inflammatory Multi-System Disease or PIMS has been adopted in Canada. Uh, but the name that is more commonly used in um, North America is actually Multi-System Inflammatory Syndrome in Children or MIS-C, and this is the term that's been coined by the WHO and CDC. So it's really been um, uh, confusing because of the many different names out there, but it's been incredible how the international community has really, um, really um, uh, been so generous in sharing information uh, and in working together to be able to uh, define this uh, still rare, but really alarming uh, and severe, uh, potentially severe syndrome in children that's uh, emerging from a post SARS-CoV-2. You describe a really interesting international collaboration and it's really that thirst for knowledge and on how to treat patients better that will drive research and, and, and clinical care in this field. So that's really excellent. Do we have any idea on prevalence or incidence of cases uh, globally or locally? So I wish we did. Um, uh, we have uh, little information uh, at a global level at this point, but there have been multiple reports from uh, large institutions as well as from countries all over the world. Um, interestingly, all report a syndrome that lags the, um, really the epidemiology of uh, SARS-CoV-2 acute infections by about four to six weeks. So it's really as SARS-CoV-2 um, co continues and trends up, um, the incidence of PIMS trends up about four to six weeks afterwards. This is in all of the world except for in Asia. So it's been reported in, um, uh, in Europe, it's been reported in um, North America, it's been reported in South America, but interestingly, it's actually not been reported in uh, Asia, especially in the Orient where the disease actually originated. So it's actually not been reported in those particular countries. And it's uh, really fascinating that, uh, how this is so, um, that the epidemiology is so very different. And do we have an understanding of why that might be? Are there any identified risk factors or exposures uh, that may lend itself more predominant in countries where cases are more prevalent than Orient countries? Again, a fascinating question and a source of uh, uh, lots of uh, research and study right now. And I think the jury is out as yet. 
Um, what we can say is really just association. None of it is cause and effect. We know that in Kawasaki disease, the classic pre-COVID Kawasaki disease is much more common in um, the Orient with um, children from uh, Japanese, um, Chinese, Korean background and ethnicity having a much higher incidence of the disease. Interestingly, it's different for PIMS. And uh, for PIMS, um, the children that are getting the most severe disease that have been reported is much more from the uh, Afro-Caribbean origin and South Asian origin, which is different than the spectrum that we've seen pre-COVID for Kawasaki disease. So lots and lots of study has uh, gone into this to look at whether um, the, uh, the uh, interaction of uh, genetic uh, contributors together with environmental uh, triggers as well as whether the virus and changes in the genetic, um, uh, genetic code of the virus uh, and the interaction with the uh, um, uh, host genetics contributes to this disease and what that role is that leads to this hyperinflammation. So lots of interesting questions, lots of exciting work that is going into this and lots of collaboration, but the uh, actual answers are still lacking at this point. Sounds really worth uh, to watch this space and just and see how the information develops over time. From what we know so far, is there an established association between COVID-19 infection, either with evidence from nasopharyngeal PCR swabs or from serological evidence um, taken from patients' bloods? So it's a fantastic question. It's almost like the uh, million dollar question in uh, PIMS. Is, is it just related to SARS-CoV-2? Is this a new spectra, uh, disease? Um, or is this something else? And um, in the majority of children, the interesting thing is that they're NP swab negative. And the reason is that the, um, it is a post-viral um, uh, hyperinflammation syndrome. So that even when they are NP swab positive, the PCR um, cycles that are required to actually uh, find the positivity is usually very, very high. Interestingly, the majority of the children are serology positive. But again, there's a lot of debate and controversy around serologic testing right now. What is the best serologic testing to look for antibody response? And there's some suggestion, obviously, that um, this may, B cell response um, uh, may not be the best looking um, uh, for um, immune reactivity to SARS-CoV-2 in PIMS, and that there may be also a T cell component that's important. So again, this is an evolving area where all the information is not there yet. Um, it's also reflected in the case definitions because not all of the case definitions from the um, CDC, the WHO, the UK, and, and, and the CPS actually share the need for confirmed SARS-CoV-2 uh, infection for diagnosis of the syndrome. So again, I think there is a real need for us to learn more, for us to really harmonize across the globe uh, what the definitions are and the requirement for SARS-CoV-2 exposure. Really fascinating. And it's again, worth watching that space to see how things develop. Just bringing it back to the, to the front line and, and what the clinician needs to know before going into a consultation with a child who has uh, prolonged fever. Across the international research and, and the bulletins and, and the notices, what are the main defining features of PIMS? So I think it's a huge spectrum. And uh, what we're um, getting to know is that it's a very heterogeneous spectrum um, of a post-infectious hyperinflammation as the common feature. So really the common elements to all of the case definitions is prolonged fever, but more and more people are recognizing that we can probably um, segue and bin these um, uh, 
this spectrum into um, three kind of big categories based on severity, with the most severe presenting with this uh, toxic shock-like feature and macrophage activation syndrome, much like what we're seeing in the child described in the case report um, in the CMAJ. Then there's another group that presents much more like Kawasaki disease, the classic kind of pre-COVID-like Kawasaki disease with the clinical features um, that, are, um, uh, that we see in Kawasaki disease, including the, the eyes, the hands, the lips, the rash, the, the lymph nodes, um, and the coronary um, uh, involvement, the cardiovascular involvement. And then on the mild end um, are really the kids that have prolonged fever and laboratory evidence of hyperinflammation with markedly elevated CRPs, but really minimal clinical features um, uh, that are but a really worrisome uh, fever with biochemical changes. So really a very wide spectrum of those that require um, uh, ICU care because of their hypotension and shock and macrophage activation syndrome to those that are mild and may be able to be uh, observed very watchfully and carefully uh, with their fever and biochemical um, uh, changes. You interestingly describe these three distinct phenotypes. As we learn more about PIMS, are we starting to find that children generally fit into one of the three boxes? You know, I wish it was that clear. <laughs> and uh, the interesting thing, as uh, much like any evolving syndrome and evolving syndrome complex, um, only the most severe kids are being reported into international literature right now. So the kids with the hypotension and shock and needing ICU care. So we're learning more and more about the less severe kids right now. And as um, uh, more knowledge is developed and we can actually um, increase the numbers in each one of these three kind of bins or categories, I think we'll be able to speak more about it. But right now, I think a lot of it is really um, hypothesis. We're trying to test these hypotheses and um, uh, uh, as in real life as well, really to as we deliver care, as we deliver and learn from the children that we look after, um, as, and as we improve our care, uh, we'll be able to uh, answer these questions better. What were the principles of treatment for the child that you wrote about in the CMHA? Uh, and not only from a medium long-term perspective, but including the initial assessment. If this child came in at two in the morning and I was the admitting doctor, what considerations might I have for, for, for this child? So I think this child presented at the extreme, the severe end of the spectrum. So I think the same, the ABCs of airway, breathing, circulation, um, and supportive care for the hypotension and shock is uh, number one. And then once um, stabilization happens, what we do know is that the key to um, dampening the uh, hyperinflammation is critical to improving um, the uh, cardiac function, as well as the features of macrophage activation syndrome. So really the first line treatment is corticosteroids and intravenous immunoglobulin. These are really the mainstay of treatment in Kawasaki disease. And these lessons have been um, really borrowed. These, we have borrowed these lessons from Kawasaki disease to help in management of PIMS, but has been found to be really very, very helpful. So steroids and IVIG. Uh, and, and in the case of steroids is really, we're talking about high dose steroids. We're not talking about a little bit of steroids. We're talking about a big pulse steroids of 30 milligrams per kilogram to dampen the myocardial um, dysfunction. Uh, and then really then weaning down to the two milligrams per kilo, which is still a very, very high dose of steroids um, that we're talking about. And this is critical to really uh, controlling the hyperinflammation, the cardiac dysfunction, as well as the macrophage activation syndrome. And um, depending on the response to this or the requirement to um, move up, 
and it escalate to um, uh, anti-cytokine therapy, um, especially um, if these children become dependent on steroids. And for this particular young man, he was. Um, required uh, institution of anti-IL-1 beta uh, therapy, which is incredibly effective against the features of macrophage activation syndrome. Really interesting. I'm just going to pick up on a couple things in terms of management principles that you mentioned. If a child presents in shock and, and one of the interventions is to give fluid resuscitation, should we be wary because they might be more at risk of cardiogenic shock? How do we find that balance on the shock floor? Yeah, I think there's always a tension between um, uh, the, the, your basic principles of ABCs and, uh, uh, and the cardiogenic shock component. And we do know that um, uh, cautious fluid resuscitation is needed in cardiogenic shock. So after every bolus of fluid, there's really a re reassessment of response. So um, you bring up a very, very important point. Um, also, I think uh, the, the critical point is um, uh, all of the other kind of red flags that we think of when we think of sepsis and evaluation of children with hypotension and other causes of prolonged fever all need to be uh, uh, bared in mind because PIMS uh, right now in almost all the definitions is a definition uh, that is excludes other causes of prolonged fever. So it's an important component to bear in, in mind that we don't think of PIMS as the first thing when these children present, but is on our list of differential amongst um, all the other causes of fever and potential uh, hypotension that we're thinking of, including sepsis and bacterial infections. Absolutely, and for, from my own experience, I know that the, the few patients that we've had who may have had PIMS um, were always started on a broad spectrum cephalosporin antibiotic, um, to which was later proved to be ineffective is that something you find in your practice or in your experience as well? I think ruling out infection um, and doing blood cultures and the appropriate things is uh, one of the mainstays. And the emergency physicians are very um, careful to look at both infectious and non-infectious causes of fever in these cases. Um, and absolutely, before going in with the mark, uh, before the cultures come back, if you're needing to markedly immunosuppress, um, the prudent thing may be to cover with broad spectrum antibiotics. You mentioned corticosteroids and IVIG as mainstay treatments here. Over what time would we expect to see a response if, if we were treating a child with PIMS after the initiation of corticosteroids and IVIG? Yeah, so the dramatic thing I must say is that, especially if you give, give corticosteroids in the very, very high pulse hyperinflammatory suppression doses, we see um, response really within about uh, six to 12 hours, at least in the cardiovascular component. So that that really is uh, one of the telltale signs that you're treating a hyperinflammatory reason leading to the cardiogenic shock is that the response to uh, high dose corticosteroids is quite dramatic. But what we have learned after um, uh, the, a lot of uh, international experience in treating with uh, steroids is that it is not a, um, a, a few days and it's over um, scenario that the inflammation is really a prolonged inflammation. And if you wean the steroids off too quickly, too quickly meaning less than um, about three weeks, two to three weeks, that there usually is a rebound in the inflammation. So most guidelines now are recommending a longer wean of steroids um, in these children so that to last at least uh, several weeks uh, before you actually stop the steroids to, uh, because of the rebound in inflammation that we've seen uh, in fever and inflammation that we've seen in these children. Really important practice pointer for our readers. So thank you very much for bringing that up. And any thoughts around the response to IVIG? 
So again, uh, lessons borrowed from Kawasaki disease, and because IVIG is the standard of care right now for um, Kawasaki disease, we have borrowed that. And again, um, studies will, uh, will really either uh, confirm or, uh, or not uh, whether that is a wise decision. But right now, I think um, uh, IVIG and steroids remain the mainstay of therapy. A lot of evidence, uh, uh, at least some, ex uh, some evidence uh, in these children, in the entire spectrum, do show that this is the appropriate management uh, regimen, given the fact that the majority of these kids actually develop thrombocytosis or marked elevation in their platelet count in the subacute phase when the fever has gone away, really um, mirroring what we see in Kawasaki disease. So I think that the concept of treating with the gold standard treatments, including IVIG and steroids in this case, are really reflected in that uh, in this uh, these clinical observations. But again, the jury is out and we need to follow these kids um, more long term to be able to understand the, the, uh, um, the, the effectiveness of either agents right now. But in the short term, the effects um, and the really reassuring factor is that the majority of these children have done well and their cardiovascular um, abnormalities have uh, by and large uh, resolved with these treatments. That's really excellent news. I'm just going to push you one more point further on that. We talked about the effect of steroids and IVIG. Um, on the cardiovascular component. Any indication on when the fever should resolve after commencing those treatments? It all is very dependent on the child and I wish we had a crystal ball to be able to say that this is the child who's gonna respond, this is the child who's not gonna respond. But we can say that um, the uh, biochemical and laboratory features that we talked about at the very beginning of the podcast seem to predict the kids who are a more recalcitrant treatment. So it's um, very variable. Some kids respond right away to one dose and some kids require retreatment with IVIG or higher dose steroids in this particular case or even biologic agents. So I think it's extremely variable and it really reflects the heterogeneity in the um, clinical presentation. So some very rapid with um, uh, one dose of IVIG and some requiring IVIG steroids and um, uh, biologic agents uh, to control the hyperinflammation. Thank you. That's really, really thorough and really uh, gives us some food for thought. And can you tell me a little bit about how the child's doing now? Yeah, it's great news. Um, this, uh, this young man is doing beautifully. We've um, uh, been able to wean this child off his uh, steroids. He remains on um, IL-1 blockade, but again, doing so incredibly um, better uh, that we're also starting to wean the IL-1 blockade now on this, uh, on this child. And he's a uh, uh, re resumed all his normal activities, energy level, completely normal, and doing all the wonderful things that a, uh, that a child his age should be doing. Brings me right back to thinking about how to monitor these children and monitor the treatment over time. Do you recommend serial blood tests to help guide us through that process? Thinking about the more clinical aspects of fever and persistent observations. What is the current follow-up strategy, both in hospital and out of hospital? It's a fantastic question and it uh, continues to evolve. Um, but I think one of the central tenets would be um, serial observations and careful observation, both in hospital and outside of hospital, um, until the um, uh, laboratory features of hyperinflammation have resolved. And I think the, the um, uh, principles of uh, making sure that the uh, child is stable, um, the, the, uh, obviously the fever and any of the acute and organ um, uh, uh, dysfunctions have resolved before um, uh, discharge, and then close follow-up with uh, cardiovascular monitoring, including repeat echoes as appropriate, 
um, in the, uh, in the uh, uh, subacute phase, um, much like the protocols that we use in Kawasaki disease are right now being used in uh, PIMS until we know more um, and uh, until we're reassured um, that the uh, uh, cardiovascular consequences have resolved and that we're not missing anything. I think that's one of the critical features. Um, the other important um, uh, item of note is really the, in the severe kids with macrophage activation syndrome and depression of their, uh, of their cell lines and multiple um, uh, cytopenias that we're seeing, um, following this and making sure that this resolves and the ferritin goes back to normal um, as um, uh, to help us together with the clinical features to uh, really modulate and guide our uh, immunosuppressive therapy is a very important component, uh, both in hospital as well as um, after discharge. You bring up a really excellent point about uh, monitoring the biochemistry and the, the serology. And I, and I wondered whether the same principles that we often use in pediatrics, trends versus absolute numbers comes into play here. So you mentioned normalization of the ferritin, um, and you know, that's, as you know, it's non-specific marker really of information. What's the current guidance in terms of um, how long and how intensive we need to monitor these children if, if they peaked and now they're slowly either stable or heading towards normal? So it's a fantastic question. And um, uh, uh, without getting myself into trouble, quoting different guidelines, I must say that there's a great variation in care across the globe in terms of what is the um, best, uh, uh, what are the exact cutoffs. So you're absolutely right, is that it's really the trends that we're after. So it's not absolute numbers, but trends that's most important. So that if the numbers are trending in the right direction, um, that is uh, much more, um, or trending in the wrong direction, um, those are um, really all point to the need for serial um, uh, observations, both clinically as well as in the laboratory, um, and um, will actually drive our guidance in that way. But it is important, at least from the MAS viewpoint, that not only do we have to trend in the right direction, but it would be important to not discontinue immunosuppressive therapy until the numbers actually have completely normalized. When would you expect your pediatrician working in a district general hospital in a non-specialist setting to phone you and ask for help? And what are your referral thresholds for accepting patients to the rheumatology, infectious disease, HD or ITU setting at a place like SickKids in Toronto? Yeah, it's a, again, a great question um, and, uh, and controversial. Um, so I think um, if there is a need um, for, obviously, I think any child that requires specialist or ICU care needs to be um, uh, uh, referred. So any child with uh, shock or um, a macrophage, evolving macrophage activation syndrome, we should really think about um, the need for a multidisciplinary team and um, ICU support. And those children are, I think, um, uh, easy kind of uh, no debate. Those need to come. I think is as we move along the spectrum, though, uh, of thinking of Kawasaki disease or just fever with hyperinflammation, um, again, it's the comfort level of the physicians and the uh, ability to serially observe these children and to, um, uh, and to do the extended tests. So again, we spoke about the tiered approach to evaluation uh, and really looking for these complications of um, uh, shock and, uh, uh, and uh, MAS are the main features that I would be concerned about. Just moving on to any major take home. So what do you think our most important messages are for primary care, general physicians, general pediatricians to keep in mind as we move forward in this pandemic? I think um, right now, um, as we continue to learn, I think we need to all continue to learn together 
and need to continue to share the information as we get more answers. So I think raising awareness and being aware that children with prolonged fever weeks after SARS-CoV-2 um, should be observed with uh, serially, uh, as we've uh, mentioned. And uh, although um, it's scary, it's important to remember that with it's still extremely rare and that with appropriate treatment, all the children do very well. In fact, all the children that we've taken care of in Canada have done very well. They've all recovered. So I think it's important that although this is emerging, it's alarming, but to both the caregivers as well as to families, um, uh, we need to uh, really put this in perspective um, that um, it is ex exceedingly rare and that the communications and the knowledge sharing that has gone on has really heightened awareness um, to the syndrome and that the children have done well um, uh, with the current therapies uh, that are available to all of us. Dr. Ray Young, thank you so much for joining us today. Really productive and, and brilliant conversation on pediatric inflammatory multisystem syndrome and where we are now. Well, thanks so much for giving uh, uh, us the opportunity to share a story and to raise awareness for this emerging new COVID-associated hyperinflammatory syndrome. I'm hoping that the world will come up with a, a uniform name so that there's a less confusion, and I look forward to uh, sharing that information uh, in the future. Thanks for inviting me. I've been speaking with Dr. Ray Young, pediatrician, professor of pediatrics, immunology, and medical science at the University of Toronto and a senior scientist in cell biology research at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto. To read the article she co-authored, visit cmaj.ca. Also, don't forget to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on SoundCloud or a podcast app, and let us know how we're doing by leaving a rating. I'm Dr. Neil Chanchlani, Associate Editor for CMAJ. Thank you for listening. <laughs>